If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and go to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. It um, really is good to be back. Anybody else agree? It is good to be back. Uh, I enjoyed my air conditioning like I never have before. Uh, (laughs) I enjoyed going to the supermarket like I never have before. I said, yes, babe, I will go grocery shopping with you. I would love to. Um, (laughs) I enjoyed electricity like I never have before. I just kept going on. I just kept listing off all these things to my wife. I said, I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for this. Um, Yes, I'm thankful for her. (laughs) I did say to her that I really want to go with her next time. I could have someone feel sorry for me the whole time. I'm just kidding. Um... uh, here, here's what I'd like to do today. Um, I would like to spend a few moments talking about Haiti, talking about um, some of our vision and desires, and then the latter half of today, I would like to work through Galatians 6, verses 1 through 6. This was the passage that I had the privilege of teaching some of their pastors and church leaders in Haiti. Um, it is a passage that we have preached similar passages to, um, uh, or I have preached on similar passages to the topic in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Um, but uh, I'd kind of like to, to work through it and let it encourage us. Um, and as we're working through this, I, I want to, I want to, uh, my goal is to hopefully set this up in such a way that you can kind of, as we work through it, you can see where our Haitian brothers and sisters are at as they are trying to work through this passage as well, and as they're trying to implement this um, into their family as believers. Um, so, uh, with that said, I, I want to kind of chit-chat a little bit about um, Haiti and our, our vision, and, and I want to set it up like this. Um, you know, I was talking to Noah, you're going to hear me reference Noah a lot this week, because God used Noah to teach me lots of things, and I don't mean uh, the Old Testament Noah, I mean like uh, Noah, who said he's going to dress up like me for Halloween, Noah. Uh, and uh, I'm going to try also, for those of you who didn't go on the trip, I'm going to try and keep the inside jokes to a minimum so that you don't feel left out. Um, I, I really don't want you, I want you guys, all of us, to worship in this time together as a family. So what I, what, one thing that he, I, I told him, I said, I think one of my weaknesses as pastor and leadership, or one of the mistakes, if you will, that we've made is, is we haven't developed a clear vision of missions and a clear application of those missions. And, and although part of that might be true, he still reminded me, he said, how did the early church handle things? They addressed them as they come, right? So, the apostles found themselves doing too, many, too much stuff. They were neglecting the teaching of the Word. So what did they do? They found uh, deacons to help aid in that. So they went through the whole and developed that whole thing and what that looked like. And, um, and so that was encouraging to me to say, hey, now we're facing some of these things where we need to draw distinctions. We need to draw things in, on the board of how do we want to do things? How do we feel called to do things? How does God... To dictate for us to do things particularly related to missions. Um, so at the risk of losing some of you right off the bat, I want to read to you a, a, an extensive um, post here, uh, or a writing on entitled, Discipleship is Not Sexy. And I think we will find this very applicable in our culture, but again, we're kind of right now, we're kind of in the context of thinking through missions and such. So before I read this, uh, let me say this. We don't have all of this figured out. I, I will tell you as, as your pastor, 
the whole plan and what our mission is going to look like in the future and what that will take shape and all of the guidelines. I don't have all of that figured out. And, 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 that's, and I'm okay with that. And I, and I hope you're okay with that. We're gonna, it's going to take time. And it's going to be an ever-changing, always evolving thing. There will be certain things in Scripture that we must stick to that are non-negotiable. And there's going to be other things that will change. Our vision may change. Our, our objectives may change um, in the different areas that God calls us to. So let me read this to you about discipleship is not sexy. It says this. A dear friend and fellow pastor at my church often says, Haiti is sexy. Anyone who has been there knows that Haiti is anything but sexy. What my friend means is that Haiti is very attractive when it comes to short-term mission work. It's close, fairly cheap. (laughs) It's such a relative term. Fairly cheap to travel to, and it's poor. All of these elements make it very alluring to the mission-minded Christian. It is especially sexy, if you will, to the emerging generation of justice and mercy-minded believers. I have seen over and over again the instant willingness of young men and women to sacrifice time and resources to minister to the beautiful people of Haiti. I believe this willingness is rooted in the growing understanding that we have a responsibility to serve and assist the poor and afflicted of our communities and the world. Gospel feet run to those in need. Poverty and affliction are the bookends that hold up the volumes of Haiti's tattered history. This being the case, many people want to go and want to help. The question that we keep coming back to is, what is help? Does it help to bring clothing? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Does it help to provide food? Sometimes the question we have to answer is, what is the greatest need of the people of Haiti? I have learned in the past 18 months that what is needed most is for, the, is for Haitian men and women who call Jesus Lord to begin leading their communities out of the pit of poverty, dependency, immaturity, and fear. There's a lot of God talk in Haiti, but little genuine walking day to day as a follower of Christ. There are many churches, but little transformation of people and communities. There's a lot of preaching, but little discipleship. Discipleship is the greatest need that Haiti has. And the good news is that this is why Jesus died. He bled and suffered and died to make holy the unholy. To make people who would live, to make people who would live like him. To make righteous the unrighteous. Uh, To, and when he left his own disciples, he commanded them to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey the Savior. In recent years, we have seen the rise of clothing and shoe manufacturers who will shoe children when you buy a pair of their shoes. T-shirt companies who refuse to buy material from companies who use child labor. Or international organizations who will send goats and chickens to impoverished families for Christmas on your behalf. This has all become, this has all become very trendy or sexy, some might say. I think this trend points to a growing sense of responsibility and sensitivity on the part of the Christian consumer, and rightly so. He goes on, Our heart is to see disciple-making added to the list of trendy and sexy. Maybe an organization that will invest in disciple-making for every hat you buy, or a Christmas catalog that helps you find a men's mentorship program, or a college fund where half of the money goes to educate poor children in the gospel. Even as I write these ideas, they all seem very unsexy. The truth is this. Discipleship is not sexy. It is hard to define. It is anything but instant. And it is hard to measure. It takes time, commitment, and perseverance. With that being said, it is the task that Jesus promised to be present in every step of the way. Matthew says it like this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is His command that motivates and His promise that sustains the work of disciple making at home and abroad. We see that Jesus model. We see that Jesus' model of discipleship is one of multiplication, meaning that he is sending out a group of people that he discipled, that they might make disciples who will go, will do all that he commanded, including the command to make disciples. Therefore, Jesus is making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and so on. 
It must be pointed out then that though discipleship is not sexy, it is surely reproductive. Any discipleship initiative that does not reproduce itself into other believers stops short of our Lord's expectations, model, and command. In two cultures that have traded true intimacy for sexy and hard work for instant gratification, it is no wonder that both American and Haitian churches find themselves filled with undiscipled Christians. No wonder our evangelistic methods produce illegitimate children unfathered in the gospel. May we be those who fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all we have been commanded. And behold, King Jesus is with us in every moment until he and his kingdom fully come. <clears throat> Discipleship's not sexy. You know, I relate this to our culture. I was recently in a meeting with uh, another church leader and we were talking about um, where we're at as a church. And there was this sense of tension inside of me. When I, when I look out at other church plants that are in similar stages as, our, as, as we find ourselves here, um, the things that get talked about the most is the churches that are the largest. Uh, the churches that in year two are running 200 people, the churches that in year two are buying buildings, and the churches that are in year two, year three, uh, have four full-time staff members and have three full bands and, and all those kind of things. And, and I find myself in this tension going, what, what can I say that measures up to that? And that, that's, a, that's a tension. It's a, it's a, it's a stupid tension, Right? It's a ridiculous tension. But you know, it's interesting. I found myself in those moments going, you know, what this person across the table from me thinks is absolutely irrelevant. As so long as we are doing what God has called us to do. And that is to disciple people. Period. So, you know, I get to say things like, you know, our growth has been slow but steady. Our numbers are not huge, but our depth is great. And it's the same thing when we go to Haiti. Our objective is simply this, to disciple our current and future Haitian brothers and sisters in the faith so that they might be used of God to bring about everlasting change to the nation of Haiti. This is our objective. That's a very clear, a very precise objective. It is one that I fear is not being accomplished by many people who go to Haiti. Um, let me give a caveat here before I move on. Medical missions, feeding the poor, all those things, those are, those are good things. And I don't have time to draw out kind of different levels of help, but to give you an idea, there are things in relief aid that we would call necessary for life. Those are things that we need to do. So, water. Like we go in, we need to provide water if at all possible. Medical aid. So this person, yeah, it might just be a wound, but that wound could turn into infection and that person die. So that we should, we should do that with, with no, nothing holding us back. On the flip side of this, giving them everything could create an unhealthy dependence. And therefore defeat the purpose of which we're going there to do. And that's to create dependence on God, not dependence on anybody else, including the white man. And so, even as we were there, um, we ran into another group of white people. And it's easy to find them because they stand out, right? Uh, as our Haitian brothers and sisters are not just black, they're black, right? Like very black. And we're not just white, we're white, okay? Uh, very, very white, co uh, contrasting, right? 
So we're standing there, and we see some brothers and sisters walk by, um, and, uh, and finally we get a chance to speak to them. And, and it was interesting to find out why... Um, I'm still connected. That would not have been good. It was interesting to find out why they were there and what their goal and objectives were. And it was interesting because we found things like medical help. And, and, and again, those, those are good things, and I, I'm not speaking ill of that. And then we found and heard things like, we are going to have a, a big service. And what we did was we, we went out and brought everybody in that was outside and then shut the doors because people either needed to be in or out. And then while they were in, we gave them all t-shirts. And then we sent them all out afterwards and, uh, in hopes that more people would come back the next day. And I, I don't want to say that that's off the wall completely wrong, but I, I do want to say, is that what Jesus did? Do, do we see... Christ doing that? Is this good for us? Is it good for us to bait and switch people? Is that good? Let me ask you this question. Do they need another t-shirt? Some might. But do they really need another t-shirt? It was interesting to tell you this is funny. You know, we have graphic tees. I have a graphic tee. This is in English. I often wear graphic tees that are not in English. They all were, were, graf- were wearing graphic tees. I fit in very well. Uh, except I could read all of theirs and, and they could not. Because uh, they were all in English. <laughs> uh, here, you want me to tell you what that says? You know? Because uh, I'd have to say it in Creole and that would not be, go for very well. But um, we have to think through these things. Is, is this good? Is it good for us to create dependency on them? Or for them to create dependency on us? No, it's not good. And I think we go, we have to be careful because when we go into a culture that's not our own, whether it's Haiti or any other culture, we have to be careful that we don't try to impose our culture on them rather than imposing the gospel on them. Do they need to have three TVs? Do you feel bad for them that they don't have three TVs and color cable on all of them? Don't feel bad about that. That's, not, that's our culture. And maybe even to our demise. Or to our detriment. They may not have 50 pairs of clothing or four pairs of shoes. Should we feel sorry for them? Probably not. That's their culture. But you can see, though, where water is a different thing. This is life or death. We all need, cross-culturally, we need water to survive. So, the question, I think, comes down to what do, does our Haitian brothers and sisters and fellow mankind in Haiti, those who have yet to follow Christ, what does the nation need the most? Let me give you one other example of this. As we were talking to this other group of people, uh, white people, uh, we seriously all look like Casper in the midst of all of that, right? So we're talking to him, and, and, and they speak on one of their other projects that they're going to do is an agricultural project. And, and that seems like, at first, seems like a very good idea. Okay, we're going to take a, la- a, a section of land in the city and develop this to grow crops so that they can feed each other, they can feed themselves, they can feed the poor, uh, uh, the imp- and, and so on and so forth. It was interesting. I didn't know this at the time, but then a little bit later, Noah and I began to discuss this. And he said, you know what? Right by the church, the, the Baptist church in the area, the Baptist church building, I should say, um, there was a big garden. The only garden in the city of Phaeton of about 3,000 people. And it was a beautiful garden. Like, I mean, everything's planted in nice rows. And this 80-year-old man with no teeth, could barely walk, keeps that garden up by himself. Now that's amazing. Feeds his family. I think he does some selling of those crops. He has lime trees and lemon trees and, and all these things. And, and he does this all by himself. Now, let's think about this for a second. 
if the city of Phaeton was going to dig into, no pun intended, agriculture and support their families by crops such, don't you think they would have done it already? So what's the problem? There's a deeper issue. There's, there's, there's a deeper issue that only the gospel can transform. So what needs to happen? Without, well, I'm just going to, I'll just do this. We'll just cut right to the chase. What needs to happen is this. The gospel needs to come in and transform those people. Here we have a man of the church who is already doing this that could provide for lots of people. And there's plenty of land there for them to do this. So what needs to happen is that the gospel needs to transform the church. And then the church needs to begin teaching and pushing their people. Hey, we have this resource here. Let's take advantage of it. Let's do it. Let me give you one last example of this very thing. Uh, Noah was in a conversation with a translator and another pastor. And he's talking to this pastor, and this pastor says, we have no way to take care of our elderly. That's a very big issue in Haitian culture, is not taking care of their elderly. So Noah says, well, what about doing some agriculture, raising some crops? And the pastor says, that's a great idea. And of course, this is all going through the translator and the translator. And, And so the pastor says, that's a great idea. We need machinery. We need machinery. So the pastor, or Noah says to the pastor, through the translator, says, well, how many people do you have in your church? He says, over a hundred. He says, how many of those are young people? Oh, we have lots of young people. So he says to him, why don't you have the young people go out there and work the garden? And the translator looks at Noah and says, I will tell him what you said as soon as he wakes up. He was sleeping. He didn't want anything to do with that. There's a problem there. So the need can be met, or some of the needs anyways can be met, but there's an issue there. And I'm not saying this to put down our Haitian brothers and sisters. It's just the gospel is the solution to the problem, not white man's money. The gospel is the solution to the problem. Taking care of elderly that we are commanded to do as a church is not happening. And it it terribly doesn't happen here either like it should. But we have to get in mind from the very beginning that our solution, not our solution, but God's solution to Haiti, to every culture, is that the gospel would transform it from the inside out. So when we go there, we will do medical things and, and, and relief aid that is ne- that's necessary for life to continue on and those kind of things. But our main objective is to strengthen the people by the use of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So to disciple our current and future Haitian brothers and sisters in the faith so that they might be used of God to bring about everlasting change to the nation of Haiti. What is our vision? Our vision is this, is that one day the cities and villages of Haiti will be inhabited by strong disciples filled with the knowledge of our God, gathering to be the church, resulting in a total community transformation. That's our vision, that one day we can look around in different cities of Haiti and go, man, there's this church, this gathering of believers, and here's how they, through the gospel, are transforming their community. And here's this church in the city of Phaeton, and here's what they, what God is using them and transforming the culture. So they're the ones spurring the men of the church to take care of widows and orphans and spurring the families in the church to take care of the elderly and through means of agriculture or, or, or whatever the case may be. That we would see, let me give you just, just, just a glimpse. So the city of Phaeton, as we were speaking to this, this other church um, or group of Christians, white Christians, um, the question was brought up about leadership. And the leader, I think the statement was made like this. The leadership in this community is, is zero. There's, there's very little leadership at all. The other person proceeds to speak about community leadership. As were our context, 
was clearly church leadership. So the solution to the city of Phaeton, uh, yes, do they need community leadership? Leadership, absolutely. But let me give you, let me just share. Just just think about this. Imagine in a, in a community where there is no government leadership, and the church rises to the occasion. The church says, "Let's lead." What could happen to those three thousand people? The church begins to lead the people. Now, should the church seek probably to have some other sort of government leadership and stuff? I, I don't know. I, I don't want, want to get into that. But just imagine the church steps up and say, hey, let's take care of these people over here, and we're going to do it this way. So, our visions that one day the cities and villages of Haiti will be inhabited by strong disciples, filled with the knowledge of our God, gathering to be the church, Resulting in a total community transformation. How? How are we going to do this? And, and it's interesting because this model or kind of way of thinking through things applies to us as a church in the States. And it applies to us as individual Christians who live day in and day out for our Lord. And the first step is this. When we go into a culture, we, we need to identify. Identify people uh, do recon in the community and figuring out who, who's the leaders, who's the key leaders, and who's already following Christ. Or maybe out of these people that are following Christ, who, who has potential maybe to be a church planter, could go start another church over here in this city. And, in, and as we identify, we can build relationships with people for the purpose of the gospel. And the second step is that we invest. As we build these relationships, we do education and edification, mutual edification. So on this trip, there was lots of mutual edification. We went there to be used by God, and we learned so much. So much. So much about ourselves. Let me give you a little side note. I think when we are put in situations where things are out of our control, who we really are comes out. Who we really are is the veneer comes off and it's just displayed for the world to see. That's one thing you learn in a country that is very much not like our own. But edification and education, teaching them the word. And again, this is not sexy, right? I think it's sexy, but what I think doesn't matter, right? I think it's sexy to go in and teach them the word and let the gospel transform them and let their lives be changed forever. And, and it may not make that big of a difference right now, but it will make a big difference for all of eternity. But we know that the gospel is not just for eternity, but it's for transformation now. And so that's awesome. That's sexy. <laughs> Feels awkward using that word, but you get one of the point. And the third, so identify, invest, and the third is imitate. Um, we should all be worthy of imitation. We should be in our walk with Christ where we could say to someone else, follow me as I follow Christ. Because it's not them, Im it's not them imitating my steps, but it's them seeing Christ through me. And so as they imitate me, they're really just imitating Christ. And all of our lives should be worthy of imitation. And so the same thing down here, we want to be able to say to them, imitate us as we follow Christ. And, and again, that doesn't mean imitate our culture. This means imitate our following of Jesus, our dependency on Jesus, our seeking after Jesus, our praying to Jesus, our proclamation of Jesus, our teaching. All, that's what we want them to imitate. So when we go down there, we want to model that. We want to edify them, teach them that, and we want them to reproduce that and then send them out to do the very same thing. Identify, build relationships, invest in those relationships, edify them, educate them, and then, ask, then encourage them to imitate through this process and then send them out to reproduce and to do the very same thing. So we ask the question, I've already spoken to this a little bit, what about physical needs? 
Again, we must be wise in how we do these things. We must be wise. We must not create an unhealthy dependence on us or anybody else, but needs that can be met, that needs that need to be met in order for life to be sustained. Those are, those are clear ways in which we um, should be involved. And so I'll give you another example, like the, the medical um, uh, place underneath that, that some of our ladies got to do some work at. Um, we, we sent down a bunch of gauze and different other uh, medical supplies, and they used all of the gauze in half a day. That's an opportunity where we can, can continue to help them with some of these supplies. And again, we have to balance this dependence versus life or death. So I think in this situation, by, by my judgment, there's already a doctor there that's making great sacrifices on his own, of his own account, to take care of these people and to, to move into this, this community and, and help take care of these people. And so this is an opportunity f- for us, and he's doing life and death things. It's an opportunity for us to come in and help him and help support that mission there and still not create this dependency thing that we need to watch out for. So... What was Renovation Church able to do? And, and I want to say some of these things. And I want you to understand, and, and, and those who went on the trip, those who did not. Um, this is what God did, right? So when I say these things, these are things that God was able to do that He worked through us to bring about. So I want to make sure that that's clear. We're able to teach five pastors about man, sin, and restoration within the church. How valuable that is for a community to learn what sin is and for church leaders to then be encouraged to hold their people accountable, to lead them out of sin. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, be able to hold them up, to bear their burden, and then build them up in the faith. To give you an idea where these particular men were at is the idea that, that pretty much them as pastor was the one doing all of this. Can you imagine that for a hundred people? And what we were able to see is that if my eyes are focused over here as pastor, there's things going over here that I can't see. So it's impossible for me to do all of this by myself. But how is it biblically? What is Paul saying in Galatians 6? He's saying that all of us should be doing this for each other, bearing each other's burdens as we seek to follow Christ. We're able to teach 30 youth, something like that, that about Jesus and following their church leaders. Our women were able to discuss with 30, uh, and, and these numbers are totally, just giving you an idea, uh, godly, with, with many godly women about issues related to to their femininity, godly femininity. Um, we get the same opportunity to do this in the city of Phaeton. Um, the city before that that we were able to work in is a city in the Dominican Republic called Congrejo. Um, but Congrejo, within Congrejo is a, a very, a rather large community of Haitians. Um, to give you an idea, Haitians and Dominicans do not mix well at all. They, they really want nothing to do with each other. Um, to give you an idea, as you leave this, at least this particular port uh, or uh, border, yes, as we were leaving this border, they actually had a guy with a pressure washer out and would wash the dirt off of the the tires of the truck because Dominican did not want Haitian dirt in the DR and vice versa. Um, so you have the city of Haitians in the middle, or this community of Haitians in the middle of Congrejo. Because um, they come there because the opportunities are much greater. The government's more stable. And so part of, part of this is just strategy. This is, if this is our objective, how can we get to that objective? And one of the greatest ways that makes sense is that the church in Congrejo is stronger than most of the churches in Haiti. So what, we can, what, what our hopes is to do is to go in, teach them, strengthen them, and begin to foster the idea of church planting in Haiti. Now, 
You talk about a, a rather large task. Think about this. Think about the uh, Mexicans that come to the United States to get out of their country, to make lots of money here. Most of them do not consider themselves, whether they are here legally or not, they don't consider themselves American, right? They are Mexicans. Same thing with the Haitians. They're not Dominicans, whether they've been there for 20 years or not. They are Haitians. Haiti is their home. They're kind of like sojourners in a foreign country. And so, just like the Mexicans, you imagine going to a Mexican in the United States and saying, you know what? We know you're doing very well here, but we want you to go back to Mexico and plant churches. Could you imagine what they would say to you? Yeah, right. I don't think so. And so we understand in this task that, that it, God is the one that must work in those hearts. Send them back. And what's interesting is we already are beginning to see couple of the pastors that are already beginning to have a heart for planting churches in the country of Haiti. Again, this is not something that happens overnight. We can't go down there and leave and say, we built this building, and here it is, and here's pictures of it. We can say, we built these relationships, and I have no pictures to display it. That's it. Those are things that I, I just... Again, building a building, nothing, not that that's necessarily wrong. But there is just something about being involved in things that it is only possible for God to take credit for. There's things in your life, when you look at it and you go, there's no way that I could have had anything to do with that. Only God could have done that. And again, not that the other is bad or wrong. Um, there might be a place for that, so... In the seat of Phaeton, we were able to do the same thing. Um, we also got the opportunity, like I said, to do some medical work, primarily consisting of wound care. Um, without going into grave detail, I, I did not see the picture, or rather not see the picture, but there was a lady that was like missing half of her calf. Uh, and you could see all of that stuff in there. Um, I mean, this is what we're talking about. I and mean, that's life or death. A wound there is not a good thing. Um, to give you an idea, I guess in the Dominican, um, C-sections are like the way to go. Uh, as in doctors want to do C-sections. But think about that. A big open, well, you know, I guess the baby's not up here. More like down here. Uh, or down, yeah, you know what I'm saying. So big wound. Big wounds are not good when there's not much sterilization. So, these are life and death situations that we get to be a part of. Um, we were able to see one soul come to faith in Christ. Amen? Amen? A man that the pastor, Pastor Claybear, the pastor of the church in Congrejo, has witnessed to a numerous other times, um, lives 25 yards from the front door of the church, Literally, he could throw a stone and hit the church. And we walk in there, and, and God, it, it wasn't short and sweet. There was an extensive discussion. Uh, and, and God saw fit, at least from our vantage point, to, to transform his heart. Here's the beauty of this, and, and why and how we do things, and want to continue doing things, is that it wasn't just me and a translator that went to this pastor's house. It was Robbie and I. There's a translator and then Pastor Clay Bear. So who gets to follow up with this individual tomorrow when we leave the country? Pastor Clay Bear. That, and you're going, well, duh. Like, that makes sense. Yes, <laughs> we should do it. And, and that's, that's what we want to be about. Um, Pastor Clay Bear's response uh, one night as we were getting, as it was the last time we saw Pastor Clay Bear before leaving for Haiti. Uh, I'm just paraphrasing, but basically his words were something like this. Thank you for coming and teaching us the word. Thank you for helping us understand it more clearly. It is very encouraging to us. We don't want you to go home, but we understand that you must. We want you to come again. 
So this idea of, of moving them towards the gospel and building up the church to transform the communities, I think in those moments we got to see a glimpse of that happening. So I want to show you guys a video here, uh, and then we're going to jump into Galatians chapter 6 for the remainder of our time. But please enjoy this video with us. believe when we um, get down to the foundation of what God has called us to do, just like we've done as a church here, like let's get down to what is it we're to do. We're to be transformed by the gospel. How best can we do that? So our objective is to be transformed by the gospel and to see that happen in each other's lives. And how can we best do that? We do that through accountability, through teaching the word of God. When we go to another culture, what is it that they need? They need to be taught the word of God. And yes, they have other issues, other humanitarian things that need to be fixed and and all those things, but what they need most is the gospel, and to be transformed by the gospel. So let's take them the gospel. I think you see the end result that our objective was accomplished. We did what we set out to do. The vision is happening, and that worship is why we go. We go because worship doesn't exist, or proper worship doesn't exist. So with that said, let me share with you some thoughts from Galatians chapter 6. When you saw me doing these little finger motions and stuff like that, uh, um, that's why I was teaching this passage. And God taught me that I wasn't a very good teacher on this trip. Uh, I was humbled on a number of times uh, and uh, had to fight through some sin in my own heart in those moments. Um, But uh, the result is just knowing that it's God's word that's there to transform, not Matt's words, is encouraging. Um, but also just the encouragement to, to continue down this path. So let's look at Galatians chapter 6. But what I want to do before we jump into Galatians chapter 6, I want to set the context here real quick. So Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, let's read this. We're going to boogie through this text. So don't worry, I'm not preaching for an hour from this point. Verse 13 says this, You... For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that you who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So for those who have been transformed by the work of Christ, we have been called to freedom. We've been called to freedom. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But still Paul says that we have the desires that are of the flesh. 
So one, let me stop for just a moment and, and, and uh, narrate here. In the city of Congrejo, one thing that they're struggling with, particularly the pastors there, is this idea of sinning. So you would ask them the question, do you sin? And they wanted and would even go to the extent of saying no. Because they didn't understand the idea that we could be crucified with Christ and yet still sin. So this is a very valuable thing for them to learn. It's just something that they have not studied or grasped or God has not illumined them to yet or, or so on and so forth. But it was awesome getting to work through this. But this is something for us to remember as well. That we have a war going on inside of us. We have the Spirit that is working against the flesh and the flesh is working against the Spirit. We fight this. You should feel daily the tension between these two. You say, well, but as I sin less, the Spirit has more control. Right, whoa, whoa, whoa. As the Spirit has more control, He rids of more sin and gets down into the nitty-gritty even deeper. So we should feel this tension every day. If you don't feel that tension, something's winning, and it's probably the flesh. It is comfortable to just wallow in that flesh because the moment we begin to submit to Christ, the war begins to take place. So we have a war going on inside of us. There is a battle in our minds. He goes over the evidence that of evidence of the fleshly desires winning the battle. So I mean think about these in your own life, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. Like, man, he just pounds out the list right there. One of, all of us struggle with multiple things in that category. Evidence of the Spirit is winning the battle, but the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 24, And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Think about that. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we're not studying God's Word daily, not communing with God, then there is no chance for us to keep in step with the Spirit and overcome these fleshly desires in our lives. We must keep in step with God. But Paul recognizes that there's a real struggle here. Paul also understands that following Christ was never meant to be done alone. Following Christ has a necessary component of biblical community. And that's what Paul's getting ready to go into in Galatians chapter 6 here. As we wage war against sin in our lives, we wage war with our brothers and sisters. See, that's where Satan has us in a trap in our American culture. Even us, we, we this is like one of our battle cries as a church, as, as, in such, is that we are to hold each other accountable and spur each other onto the cross. Like, this is one of our battle cries. But even us, we have so far to go in understanding this, that as we war against sin in our lives, we should be waging war with our brothers and sisters against the sin in their lives as well. Paul gives instruction on how to do this. First, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, he says, um, at 1 through 6, I mean, it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load." Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. First thing Paul instructs us to do is to pick your brother or sister up. Pick your brother or sister up. That's where you saw me holding that little boy. I had to find the smallest dude in the room uh, so I could pick him up and hold him, right? Pick him up. That's what God's word is 
telling us to do is to pick up a brother or sister. You need to be looking to hold your brothers and sisters accountable. Your desire, though, is not to put them down for their sin. Your desire is not to be a policeman. Your desire is to keep them from the harm that sin brings and from the glory, uh, from the lack of glory that it brings to God. The unholiness that it brings to that person's life. These are the things we are looking out for. You need to restore them, he says. The goal, hear me, the goal is always restoration. If you're going to a brother or sister about a sin in their life and you find some sort of enjoyment or your goal is anything but seeing them respond in holiness, stop. You have the wrong motives and you are in the midst of sin yourself. And don't be surprised if you don't end up doing the very thing that you're going after them about. Paul warns us about that in a few moments. You need to restore them gently. Your calling is not to beat them back into submission. Your calling is to woo them back into fellowship. Imagine Christ. Christ woos us. That doesn't mean... That we don't have to say hard words. Okay? But it means we say those hard words gently with compassion and concern and love for that person. But Paul also tells us in here that we need to watch ourselves as well. It's kind of like in Matthew chapter 7 when, when everybody quotes the, the, the verse judge, you know, that we're, and they say we're not allowed to judge in Matthew chapter 7, and they don't read on, and actually what Jesus is basically saying there is that we need to remove the log from our own eye in order that, or so that we can help a brother or sister. It's a very similar thing that Paul is saying here, is that we need to be careful, and we need to um, reflect on our lives Because I think what Paul is saying here is that there's an issue of pride. That when we think there is nothing wrong with our lives, then the chances of us falling into the same sin as the person we're trying to pull up out of sin is very great. And I will tell you as a pastor, as a leader, I often see, there's kind of a, uh, maybe this should be like a proverb or something, but the thing that you complain about the most in other people, you probably do yourself. That's very, very common. Um, that's not scriptural. I'm just from observation. Uh, I see that a lot. The things that you that stand out to you the most in other people, of course, for me, you know, as a pastor looking and trying to lead people, that causes me all the time to go, "This stands out. Oh crap! Is that me? Like, am I doing this too? Is it stand? Is it? In, is it in my life as well?" Um, so the danger here is that we go into the situation prideful that we don't have sin or that sin, and then when we go to pull them up, we end up getting pulled in with them. And that's part of what Paul is warning here against. Let's go into verse, verse 2. It says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Once, we don't have time to dig into all that, but once you have helped a brother or sister back up, the second thing we need to do is to hold them up. Hold them up. It's the same thing. Sarah and I had a wonderful conversation on Friday night. But if you understand the gospel correctly, then you'll understand this correctly. So, We understand salvation and the gospel correctly. We should understand it as not just we need the gospel for the moment we're saved. But we need the gospel for the moment we're saved, for the moments we're being saved, and then we need the gospel once we get to heaven. So all of that do we need the gospel. Not just for the moment we're saved. So if you approach a brother or sister in sin, and you have that concept in mind, you understand that once you've picked them up, the process is not done yet. So they need the gospel proclaimed to them while they're in sin, and they need the gospel proclaimed to them while you're holding them from going back into that sin. 
See, we want a checkbox, right? And months and months and months of holding this brother and bearing, that's what he's talking about, bearing his burden, bearing one another's burden so he doesn't fall back into this. It's, it's the picture of he's standing next to me and, and his arms around me and I'm carrying him along. I'm bearing the weight of his burden. So we understand the gospel was not just for that moment, but we're proclaiming the gospel to them there, and we're proclaiming the gospel to them as we walk beside them. Hold your brothers and sisters up. Carry, the idea here, and I I love this, the idea here is to carry each other with endurance. To bear one another's burdens with endurance. What's it take to run a marathon? I've never ran one, and probably won't, but it takes a lot of endurance, right? takes a lot of endurance. You know, when I got out there to play soccer, oh my, our minds fool us greatly. Uh, That's when you realize how stupid you are. Yeah. (laughs) I I love playing soccer. I I did. And and so I get out there and I'm like, yeah, I got this. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I'm sure we're looking at me like that dumb American. Uh, You know, First of all, it took me a while to figure out that they were keeping the balls on the ground. They weren't kicking them, you know, like to the moon, you know. Um, and I lasted about five minutes, maybe. And then I'm like, I'm going to drop back and play defense. <laughs> so I went back and stood next to Brian, uh, back in the back. <laughs> yeah, it was particularly when I almost sprained or bo- broke my ankle that I'm like, yeah, this would not be a good idea if, if I go to the doctor. And he's like, oh, let's saw it off. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I just, I just need a wrap, okay? Okay, I'm, I'm just kidding. That's a bad joke. So the idea here is to carry each other. This, you know what this means, brothers and sisters? It means it's going to cost you a lot. It means it's going to cost you a lot. As a pastor, um, you help people in sin all the time, and it costs a lot. I'm not asking for a pity party. I just want you to see the example. It costs a lot. Um, I don't do it necessarily for you guys. I do it because God's called me to it. And if I did it for any other reasons, I, I would not be sustained through it, right? So when you go to a brother or sister, I was telling this to someone else. I said, you know, we all have trust problems, right? And we all have all multiple other issues. When we look at that brother or sister, we don't have to find trust necessarily in them. We find trust in the Jesus who's working through them. So when I go to a brother or sister in sin, you know, I'm, I don't just look at them. I see the Christ that's that's inside of them, working, trying to work through them, trying to bring about change and transformation in their lives. When you go to pick up a brother and hold them up, understand, it's not even you holding them up. You're just being used by God to hold them up. And it's Christ that's working through them. So the idea of endurance, the burdens you are carrying from the context includes anything that might tempt a sinner, a sinning believer to fall back into that sin. Let's say it's pornography. You know what? Do things to help them stay away from temptation. Buy them software for their computer. Check their computer on a regular basis. Hold them accountable. Whatever means in which they are are participating in that, help them carry that burden. It may cost you a lot. Paul issues a warning again, verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't think too highly of yourself. The tendency when this happens is for you to look down on others who are sinning and not help them. We get arrogant and prideful. I've got it figured out. Yeah, they can deal with it. Let's not do that. The tendency when, uh, sorry, the Pharisees were only concerned with their own self-righteousness, not for the true righteousness that only God gives. Once again, we need to be examining our own lives so that we can help out a brother or sister. I think you'll find, practically speaking, that as you examine and find and dig out the deep-rooted sins in your life, you will have more wisdom and tools of which to help a brother or sister with the sin in their lives. 
you may find that the very sin that you're going to approach them about is deeply rooted in you as well. And so you get the opportunity to dig it out, or the Holy Spirit to dig it out of your lives. And then, you know what, you have a great example to give to that person of how God dealt with that sin in your life. That's why church discipline, that's why we find in the American culture, in the American church, why churches are just so rough, for lack of better words, uh, unholy, is because they don't want to practice church discipline, and they miss the whole point of church discipline. The church discipline is not just so that that believer or brother is brought out of sin. The whole point is mutual sanctification. That's why we can't miss the point in Matthew 7 where we check the log in our own eye and order that. So what's going on is sanctification's happened in my life so that then I can go help sanctification happen in a brother or sister's life. And we miss that. And, but there's so much glory in it when we, when we don't miss the point. So the last thing we need to do, we pick them up, we hold them up, we build this brother or sister up. Build this brother. Galatians 6 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I don't think that what Paul is saying here is that when someone teaches you that you need to give good things to that person. Although I think he speaks on similar issues later on. I think what Paul is saying here is that there's an idea of mutual sharing of good things between the two. So you've got the one who was brought out of sin, the one that helped brought out of sin, and there's a mutual sharing. What is that mutual sharing? Holiness. You're sharing in the holiness. Sharing in those good things. The good things we share in is spiritual and moral excellence. And Paul wants these brothers in Galatia to share in the things that are of spiritual and moral excellence. The one who picked up and has held up his brother should also build him up in the word. And they're building each other up as they share in these good things, as they fellowship together. And the beauty of this is we get to share in these things together. As we pick each other up and hold each other up and build each other up, we get to share in the good things, that moral excellence, that holiness as a body, and as individuals. And what's so neat about all of this is when we are going to our brothers and sisters in Haiti uh, and our Haitian brothers and sisters, we get the opportunity to pick them up, to hold them up, build them up. And it's not necessarily that they're in sin, but maybe there's just that mutual edification that needs to take place where we're teaching them the Word, and they're teaching us the Word, and we're praying for them, and they're praying for us, and we get to share in these great things. We get to share in these kingdom things. So, I I just want to, I guess, close with this thought. Um, God is so good, isn't He? Amen. Amen. Um, I am excited to see where God takes us as a church in the area of taking the gospel to the nations. Uh, I am anxious. This is not a camp high moment, right? This is not a, woo-hoo, Jesus is awesome. Let me go attack hell with a, with a water gun. This is a, uh, this is a, our God is good and worthy of glory. And we go because worship doesn't exist. So we take the gospel to our neighbor because worship does not exist. We take the gospel to our co-workers because worship does not exist. And in the meantime, we do this as a community, picking each other up, holding each other up, building each other up. So I'm excited to see in the days to come what God does with us as a church. I hope you have your seatbelts fastened and are prepared for takeoff, right? Uh, and if the things should drop from the cabin, it makes you, I've I heard and saw that so many times, I could probably recite it. Uh, our last stewardess was clearly smoked like 10 packs a day, I think. And she's like, hey, you put on your Very raspy voice. Uh, but I got a chance to share with her, it was neat, I'll close with this. I got a chance to share with her what we were able to do, what God was able to do through us.
And it, and it, was, it was cool because you could see a little bit of a, not a tension in her, but a little bit of a, she was intrigued. Like, huh, I see that. And I just told her, look, you know, not that, not that building buildings and things like that's wrong. Uh, there's a time and place for that. Um, we want to build a different kingdom. Uh, we want to build the kingdom of God. And she's, you know, uh, it was interesting because God had taken her son on a mission trip to Haiti not too long ago as well. And I didn't know that until after we got towards the very, towards the end of our conversation. And so these are opportunities, guys. Always look for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And remember, the results are up to God, right? He's got that. He's just commissioned us with the task to proclaim it. We must proclaim it. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. And uh, Father God, Abba, Father, you love us so much. Even in the midst of our sin and destruction, you love us. And Father, we've been reminded in these recent days that you love the nations. You love the people of Haiti. That they are brothers and sisters. We've been reminded in these days that there will come a day where we will all, black, white, every nation will gather around your throne to worship you as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the infinitely holy and righteous one, the infinitely loving and caring one, the just one. That we will all sing to you. We will worship you because we will see you more clearly for who you are. And we will do this with our brothers and our sisters from around the world. We will understand each other. We will, we will know what is being said. Father, we thank you that you loved this world, that you gave your only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. So, Father, I pray that we would be a people that proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, whatever that may look like for each of us as individuals and for us as a gathering of believers called Renovation Church. Let us proclaim your gospel. The, the rocks and the creation cries out your praises. Father, let us sing louder. Let us proclaim you louder. Father, let our, our lives bring you glory. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are just smitten.